All right, if you would, open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. We'll be, uh, Lord willing, going all the way through chapter 6, uh, verse 9. And uh, as you're turning there, uh, I think it is just often, uh, even for someone who preaches, it's often uh, helpful to be reminded of what preaching is. Uh, because this is something that we hear every week, and it's a staple part of the diet of the Christian. And uh, we get the key, uh, or one of, one of the key understandings to what preaching is in Romans 10, whenever Paul says that faith comes by hearing, and it's hearing not just about Christ, but it's actually the way the Greek is, is, is saying there, it's actually hearing Christ through the preacher. And so one of the things that we have is that whenever the word is being preached and it's according to the word, you are hearing Christ. And that's actually what transforms it from rather than trying to listen to a, a good TED talk, as it were, but rather you're listening to Christ who is addressing you. And as one of my seminary professors used to say, brothers and sisters, if I'm not preaching well, pray for me. Don't critique me. Um, so... Uh, if I'm not preaching well, pray for me that I'll preach better uh, so that we will all hear Christ. So Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22, 22 through chapter 6, verse 9. Wives, submit to your, your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ... So also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but Bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, 
do the same to them. And stop your threatening. Knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. And that there is no partiality with him. This is the word of the Lord. God's people said, let's pray. Father, we do look to you asking that you would give us those spiritual ears to hear. And we can never ask for that enough. For we know you are the speaking God. You brought all things into existence by the word. And we have your word here speaking to us your truth. And it is the only truth. So Father, by your spirit, help us to hear. Help us not only to hear, but to do. To live in light of the gospel, the gospel that saves sinners who, in our own strength, we can never live in light of this. And so we're asking that you would meet us, even in our sin, that you would forgive us, but yet you would transform us, that you would help us to live more like Christ. We ask all this in his great and glorious name, amen. When a plane full of young boys crashed at sea, Ralph and Piggy of the classic novel, Lord of the Flies, even if you you read that in elementary school, They find themselves amidst chaos and desperately in need of organization. Ralph and Piggy, they gather the boys together to choose their leaders. And as you remember reading, once again, maybe a long, long time ago. But over a short period of time, their organization and community, even though they develop it, it reverts back into disorganization and chaos. Time after time, arguments occur Plans fail, disrespect becomes contagious, and mistrust is promoted. And slowly but surely, you see a bunch of boys who stir themselves out of community and back into chaos. Well, it's no surprise to see that some of the eerie things that you read about in the novel, The Lord of Flies, is actually playing out in our society today. There's not much community, but there is a lot of chaos. And because we have done such a good job at rejecting God's authority, God's truth, God's organization, the implications of that is that we've rejected true community and we have entered into a season of a lot of chaos. The only way back to actually see true community is actually to keep our eyes upon Christ. We can never lose sight of the gospel. And in this text, as you see, and as I tried to to emphasize in the reading, is that Paul is saturating these, what's called the household codes, as it were. He's saturating these household codes, not just by saying, hey, here are some general ethics. No, no, no. Here is what it looks like to live in light of the gospel. Here is what it looks like for sinners who are redeemed by the blood of Christ. Here's what it looks like to live in light of that. It's all about Jesus. And so, yes, once again, another Sunday morning where we're going to say it is all about Jesus. And we're going to work on applying that into these three major relationships here. This first relationship you see is about biblical marriage. The second one is about biblical parenting. And the third one is about biblical working. And what Paul is doing is that what's so interesting is that you remember in the section before this, Paul has been writing about what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And after this, what he's going to write about is how to battle against the evil spirits. 
Now, don't miss the context here. This isn't just random tweets. Here's what Paul is trying to say about this. To be filled with the Spirit and to simultaneously battle against the devil is to live in light of this truth. This is not a take-it-or-leave-it mentality, that this is just really inconvenient for us in our society today. Actually, as we're going to see, it was inconvenient for them too. But Paul and ultimately God, what he's trying to do is redeem our foundational relationships. We're never going to see a reformation in the world if there's not a reformation in the home. We're never going to see a reformation in the church if there's not a reformation in our household. So first, what is biblical marriage? Look back at chapter 5, verse 22. What is biblical marriage? Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, what kind of, what kind of culture is Paul writing to here? here? Here's, after some research, here's the type of culture that Paul was writing to. Let me know if this sounds familiar. Men felt the cultural pressure by some to be domineering husbands rather than loving husbands. Women often felt the cultural pressure to seek no restraint and zero control and no authority. It was a culture where men were losing their masculinity, their healthy masculinity, and becoming more feminine. Homosexuality was becoming more rampant and being promoted. And like our culture today, they were wanting to reject God's authority, God's truth, and God's organization. Does that not sound familiar? Even 2,000 years ago, to the people in Ephesus, it's a eerily similar culture to what we have today. So we can't just look at this and say, well, that's old truth. We need something new. What we need to press into is to say, what is God saying to us? Because his truth is timeless. And so when Paul is talking about marriage, he, what does he do here? He, he starts with uh, wives, and he looks, look at verse 22, wives submit. Now, we hate that word submit. It doesn't sound good. Uh, maybe, maybe for some of you, it makes you think of like boxing or UFC where someone is put into submission and they lose. Uh, but let me show you, this is what Paul is saying. It's a beautiful word the way, he's, the way he's using it. But first, before I tell you what submit means, let me tell you what it does not say. It is not saying that wives can't work or can't pursue their careers. It's not saying that. It's not saying wives are lesser than their husbands. It's not even saying that wives have lesser roles than their husbands. It's not saying wives need to submit to ungodly demands of their husbands. And it's definitely not telling wives to submit to abuse. It's also not saying that you need to only submit to your husband whenever they're perfect in their part. Because that's never going to happen. So that's what it's not saying. So let's not read those things into the text. But let's think about what is it saying? You see, this word for submit is actually, uh, the root word is the same word used for military units, to put things in good and proper order. And as in military, well, the best military is the most organized military. If there's chaos, if there's no structure, then there can be no proper orders and no, no good battle attack. And think about that in the context of getting ready to fight against the spirits of the world. 
Paul is using this word saying that he wants to put things in good and proper order. Most of the time when Paul uses this word in his writings, he's actually using it profoundly positively. It's actually a a word talking about redemption and what it looks like for the Christian to have a redeemed and forgiven and transformed life. It's a fantastically good word. It's the same word used to describe Jesus in Luke 2, 51, when Jesus was said to be submissive to his earthly parents. So you got to be careful. If we just say that the word submit is bad, then you inevitably get into really, really dark areas. When Paul does use this word negatively, here's how he uses it. When he uses the word negatively, it's used to describe the unbeliever who does not submit to God's law. So here's what it's saying. It's not a bad word. But actually, this word is actually used to show what it means to live like Christ. It's a profoundly Christ-centered, Christ-saturated word. You see, it's not a word of being lesser than. It's a God-glorifying, beautiful word that actually lifts wives up to the level that God intended for them. And what is the basis of this of this submission to their own husbands. Well, look at it. Submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Always keeping Jesus in view. Always looking to him. Because frankly to the world, it won't make sense unless we show them Jesus. That's the key. It's sad. Paul is saturating this in, in the gospel. In other words, what Paul is trying to say is that, wives, when you submit to your husbands, you have a unique and beautiful role of showing the world Jesus of showing Jesus and what he would do to his earthly father and his obedience as he came from heaven to earth and submitted to his father. It's a way to show the world him. In other words, what it means is that we could say this, when a child comes to their parents or maybe even their father and they ask, what does it mean to be a Christian? It means that the dad could look to their child and say, have you seen how your mom treats me? It's kind of like that. That's what it means. It's only, it only happens when the wife is constantly keeping her eyes on Jesus. See, how in the world are you to submit to your husband when it's so frustrating? But by keeping your eyes on Jesus. How are you to submit to your husband when they aren't doing their part? Because we won't. <laughs> how do you do it? Keeping your eyes on Jesus. You see, even for Jesus, it wasn't always, it wasn't always uh, comfortable to submit to the Father. Think about him in Gethsemane. But yet that was the picture of showing how he would win our salvation, him being obedient. And it's a, a beautiful way for us to show who Jesus is. Wives are meant, ultimately, as this analogy shows, wives are meant to show us what the church is is ultimately meant to be. What a mission. See, I love one way we could put this is that as Paul is saying, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, it's, it's kind of like, like the analogy of a compass. A compass, always, a good compass at least, always knows where north is. But when you lose north, when you forget where north is, you're never going to go in a good direction. You need to always keep Jesus in view, always looking to him who ultimately did this. And the more you look to him, the more you're able to live in light of it. See, our 
Our pride hates this. One of the common sayings you can hear today is that uh, women don't need no man. Our culture loves to promote the idea that there should be absolutely no authority at all. But here's what we need to remember, is that if we listen carefully, we'll hear the echoes of God's curse in Genesis 3, verse 16, when God said to the woman, he said, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And as one commentator says, to love and to cherish in a cursed world becomes to desire and to dominate. To not live in light of this is not to say I can do whatever I want. It is to reject God. It is to reject his word. And it is to live in light of a cursed world. See, and here are some of the reflection questions that we can have. And husbands, just wait. We're going to get to you. But here are some of the reflection questions. Wives, is there constant distrust of your spouse? Do you find yourself constantly criticizing your husband even though Jesus is not constantly criticizing you? Are you trying to destroy God's roles in marriage even though Jesus held them up? Are you showing forth rebellious pride in your marriage? Are you prone to making fun of your husband or gossiping about him in front of other people even though Jesus encourages you and speaks most highly about you? And thinking about in verse 33 when it talks about wives respecting your husbands, wives, are, are you constantly going on a sin hunt rather than a grace hunt with your spouse? See, here's what Christ does in our lives. Here's the evidence that the gospel is at work is when Christian wives are learning more and more. It's not perfect. They're never going to be perfect. But learning more and more to follow Jesus in this way. You see, I remember hearing in a, uh, when my cousin got married uh, several years ago, I remember uh, the, the preacher uh, giving the sermon for um, the wedding ceremony. And this is definitely something I will adopt and use. And I remember him saying, I remember him saying to my cousin, who's a girl, he was saying, look, the way in which you will love your husband should be the way in which it shows your children to say, that must be something like the love of Jesus for me. That's what it's meant to image. But what about husbands? Paul switches to husbands. Look at verse 25. Husbands, love your wives. Now watch this. As Christ loved the church. In other words, once again, keeping Jesus always in view. Um, Paul is saying that as Christ is the head of the church, so the husband is the head of the wife, and he's supposed to show the wife Jesus. In other words, husbands, we shouldn't make leadership like pulling teeth. We shouldn't make our wives say, this is horrible to have to submit to my husbands, because we should, hus husband, not husbands, I want to go back, whew, get myself in trouble, uh, to my husband, we want to show them Jesus in such a way where someone would say, yeah. That's, that's the type of husband that I want to submit to. God is calling husbands to love their wives. This word for love is the same word used in John 3.16 when it says that God sent his son into the world. And here's the thing. Here's what that love means. It means you love your wife, especially when she is not lovely. 
because God did not wait for us to become lovely and then sent his son. He came. These words, when Paul is giving these commands, are in the present active saying, you do this all the time, not just when you feel like it. It means that when we look at Jesus, we should learn more and more to, to love our spouse. We can't take our eyes off of Jesus. Matter of fact, one of the most unloving things we can do for our wives is to stop learning more about the love of Jesus for us. How else can we show that love to our wife if we don't soak in the love of Jesus for us? We are to love our wives, in verse 25, as Christ loved the church. Whew, good luck. But that's it. That's what Paul is calling us to. That's what God is calling us to. And how did Christ love the church? Look at it. And gave himself up for her. You see, Jesus didn't live a self-centered life. His, the, the entirety of his life was self-sacrificial and giving himself, which the culmination of it was on the cross. Husbands, we are to self-sacrifice ourselves for our wives. Daily laying down our life, not making it all about us and saying, you better obey me. Rather, loving as Christ's love is saying, how can I help you? You see, Christ sacrificed himself. He gave himself over, and you see that ultimately in the cross, which means, husbands, if we're going to grow into be more godly husbands, we need to study more of the cross. Christ is making us more like himself, and so husbands, as it says there in verse 26, that he might sanctify her, it means that our greatest goal in marriage is to help our wives to learn to be more and more devoted to God. In other words, really, marriage should be about this. It's not primarily about us, it's about God. That's not a new idea, that's just what Paul says. We should do all we can to direct them to see how amazing God and his gospel is. And that means that we need to show our wives Jesus and show them Jesus in word and in deed. You see, marriages are, are never supposed to lack theology. The most important thing in every single marriage is your theology, your real lived theology. Not just the things you think or the things you say, but the way in which you really live. We're not only to speak to our spouse about the truth of Jesus, but we're to show it the best way we can in living that way. So if we're only speaking truth, but we're always harsh, what does that say about us? Or if we're too afraid to ever bring up the truth, but we want to just do small acts of kindness. You see, we need both and, not either or. See, that's what Christ gives to us. He gives us word and deed. That's what husbands are meant to give to their spouse. In other words, it's kind of like the sun. The sun is made up of light and heat. You need both to live. Husbands, we are to give truth and deed, truth and love to our spouse for a healthy marriage. Husbands, we're called to aid in the process, as it says there, to present our wives in splendor before the Lord. Whew! That's tough. But that's what we're called to. Matter of fact, that's what Jesus empowers us to do. That's part of the mission. 
is to help present our whys in splendor and in beauty as the church itself will be presented to Christ in splendor and beauty, holy and without blemish. You see, Paul, Paul's not kidding here. Uh, it's hard. Look at verse 31 to 32. It says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And here's what Paul's doing. Paul's quoting Genesis 2, which is just saying that marriage all the way back in uh, Genesis 2 is the same way here now. It hasn't changed. That's the doctrine. That's what Jesus affirmed. That's what Paul's affirming. That's what we must affirm. This is the biblical view of marriage. Husbands are, to call, are called to love their wives as their own body. And that's such a good illustration that Paul is using because, uh, because the church is the body of Christ. In other words, what Paul is saying is that it's utter foolishness to try to hurt your own body. So husbands should not be harsh and run over their wives. It only hurts them. We're called to show, show them Jesus. And so husbands, let's think about some of these reflection questions for us. This is hard. Trust me. <laughs> uh, I was getting ready for this all day yesterday. Um, made me look around at, at my wife and my son and my, and, and my interns. And I was thinking, Jesus, you better do some work in me. And here's, where, here's what Paul is saying. Here's some good reflection questions. Husbands, are you impatient with your wife even though Jesus is patient with you? Do you lack empathy toward your wife even though Jesus empathizes with you? Are you rough and harsh with your wife even though Jesus is gentle and lowly towards you? Are you selfish even though Jesus gave himself for and to you? Are you waiting for your wife to get her act together even though Jesus came to you when you were his enemy? Do you talk about your wife in public like she's the old ball and chain, even though Jesus talks about his bride with the highest adjectives? And once again, husbands, when we reject this type of living, all we're doing is just showing we're still gripped by God's curse. It is a cursed life to reject this. God does not give us burdensome commands. He gives us good commands because they reflect him. So to reject this is not just to reject, you know, some preferences, it's to reject God. That's what God's word is saying. Joseph Cote was a distinguished lawyer in America several years ago, and journalists would love to come to him and ask him questions because he had such a quick, quick wit about him, and it was really fun to quote. And someone asked him once, Mr. Cote, if you were not yourself, who would you most like to be? And without a second's hesitation, Mr. Cote replied, Mrs. Coates' second husband. You see, here's what he was saying. He loved being married to his wife so much that if he was no longer himself, he'd like to be her second husband so he could still be married to her. That's the type of love we want for our wife. And that only happens when we continue to look to Jesus. If I can add this quote from Martin Luther, this is for both the husband and the wife. Let the wife make the husband glad to come home and let the husband make the wife sorry to see him leave. You see, we need to continue to look to Christ to turn our chaos into community. And what about parenting? Look at chapter 6, verse 1. What is biblical parenting? Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Look, I'm about to become every teenager's favorite preacher right now. Let me tell you. I used to be in youth ministry. And we're going through this, and just I see everyone go, oh, my goodness. 
Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Uh, Honor your father and mother, this is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land. And now watch this again, how are children children to obey their parents? Well, it says, in the Lord, once again, it's always looking to Jesus. It's supposed to not make sense to the world that when they, whenever they look at teenagers or college students or whatever it is, and we're saying, why are you so respectful of authority? Why are you so obedient to your parents? Jesus, that's it. It's a witness. It's actually evangelistic. See, it's meant to, to image Jesus to the world. In other words, kids, you can't learn to obey your parents when you forget Jesus. And we'll get to parents in a little bit too. Just wait. To obey means to hear and to do, not either or. It means to, when Paul is saying obey your parents, once again, he's not saying do it when you feel like it. He means always live a lifestyle of learning to do this. You see, but why are you to obey your parents? Paul gives the reason right there, for. For this is right. Here's what's amazing about this word. The root word for right here is actually the same word for righteousness. In other words, actually obeying your parents is godliness. Jesus was submissive to his earthly parents, who, by the way, were sinners. How about that? What would you think if you know you're, you're, the, you're the sinless one, you're the perfect one, right? You literally wrote the manual, and yet you got to submit to them. And you know what? None of us in here could be saved unless Jesus was a perfect, obedient child. There would be no salvation for us if Jesus disobeyed his parents one time. That's what we're talking about. To obey your parents is to live in light of God's command. Matter of fact, we need to realize that uh, that disregarding this is actually embracing, once again, the cursed life. You see, the evidence of an ungodly culture is whenever the youth culture promotes the rejection of authority. You see, there are many young people who are doing significant harm to the bride of Christ right now because we're rejecting submitting to any kind of authority. We don't want to do that, but yet at the same time, how much do we hear young people say, I want to do great things for God. Here's the thing, how can God trust us with the great things if we don't do the small things? How can we expect to do great things for God if we can't obey our parents? You see, in a culture that's constantly promoting the rejection of all authority, we need to promote a community that respects godly authority. You see, and there are times when you can have your honest opinions, but nevertheless, we must have proper obedience to proper authority. There's one night at the dinner table where President William Taft was sitting at the dinner table, and his, uh, one of his sons spoke up and said something really harsh towards uh, President Taft, and there was some silence, and then his wife spoke up and said, well, aren't you going to do something? And he said, well, if he's speaking to his father, then I'll do something, but if he's speaking to his president, then that is his constitutional privilege. You might have your constitutional privileges, But when it is to our parents, we are called to obey them. Paul also addresses parents. 
Look at verse four, fathers, and he's not just saying fathers, but he's saying fathers as the, as the leader in the marriage. Father, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Parents, we ask some questions to ourselves, and trust me, this, this cuts. Parents, are we constantly criticizing our children when they mess up? Do our children know us? This is what it means to, to provoke. Do our children know us for always being in a bad mood? Do we only go on a sin hunt with our kids and never a grace hunt? Benjamin West was trying to be a good babysitter to his little sister one day, and while his mom was out, Benjamin found some bottles of colored ink, and he was trying to paint his little sister Sally's portrait, and and as he was painting, the ink blots went all over the table and the chairs and the floor, and when Benjamin's mother came back and she saw the mess, she, she picked him up and picked up the painting and she says, man, it's Sally looking at the painting. See, she didn't rake him over the coals, even though there might be a time for that. She didn't rake him over the coals because of what all he had done. But here's what's interesting. In 1763, when he was about 25 years old, Benjamin West, he was selected as a history painter to England's King George III. And whenever he was asked about how he became an artist, he said, my mother's kiss made me a painter. Talking about that moment. Encouragement. God says parents are not just to rake their children over the coals whenever they mess up, but rather we're to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. It's two sides of the same coin. Positively. Positively, what, what God is calling us to is to bring them up in the discipline. Now, that looks, in the English translation, it looks like a negative word, but actually in the Greek, this is a profoundly positive word. Actually, instruction would be kind of the more, not bad negative, but it would be the more negative term. In other words, what Paul is trying to say here is that you don't need either or. You don't need to only say no, but you also need to say yes. You need both. Because we all know, what happens if you only say no to your kids? They're going to look at that, and when they say, don't go in the street, don't go in the street, don't go in the street, you're going to be like my older brother on a home video, and he's going to say, I'm in the street. Because that's how we are. But we need to show them both and the positive and the negative. We need to have these honest, open-door conversations with our kids about why the world is the way it is rather than just shooting things down. We need to help them wrestle with why Christ and God's word is a better way. Yes, warning them about the way life is whenever you pursue your own way, but positively holding forth the blessings of the gospel. Parents, our jobs are not just to set up rules, but it's to model grace. It's to model confession. It's to model forgiveness. It's to model repentance. And if we can tie this back to marriage, parents, if we are not doing that in our marriage with each other, how can we expect our children to learn what it means to confess and to forgive and to repent? It starts with the marriage that influences the children, and we need to show them Christ and what it means to live as sinners who are learning to repent. See, at the end of the day, no matter what we do, we know that only God can make our children embrace the promises of baptism. As Rico Tice told us one time, we preach Christ, God opens blind eyes. Parents, all we can do, all we can do is just hold up the diamond and turn it around so that our children see every angle of it 
But at the end of the day, only God opens blind eyes so they can see. And we trust his promises. We're called to be faithful. And we trust him and we look to him. That's all we're meant to do. Look, if this, if this doesn't convict us by now, I don't know what will. Uh, we can't dare to be have a godly marriage or to be godly parents without Christ forgiving us and empowering us to live differently. That's why, as always in this text and in this whole book, that Paul is telling us we need Christ to change our chaos in the community. Thirdly, Paul gets into uh, what would also be in that culture for the household codes, as many of these houses were made up of masters and servants, most likely in that culture, you were either someone who, who had servants or you were a servant. This would be part of the household, but we would, we would certainly apply this to work, and that's a foundational relationship in our culture. So Paul is really speaking to us, saying, what does it look like to be a biblical worker? You see, look at uh, verse 5 in chapter 6. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. You see, what is God telling as it were employees? It means we're to always, once again, keep Jesus in view. You see that at the end of verse 5. How are you to obey your earthly masters as you would Christ? It's not just Christianese to say, you know, how would I work in light of the gospel? That's not Christianese. It's just Christianity. We're to always let the gospel infiltrate and influence everything that we do. See, as workers, we're called to obey our authority. We don't just do it when we feel like it. We obey our bosses like we would to God. And even when our bosses are not godly, but they're still telling us to do good things, we are to obey them. Now, obviously, to be sure, if you're in a situation where your boss is getting you to do something unethical, do not obey that thing. And matter of fact, some of us might need to change jobs if we're constantly in a system that is getting us to do unethical things. We need to obey the Lord and to promote His glory. But just whenever our bosses give us something, and, it, and it's not unethical, but when they give us something, and even though it might be uncomfortable, we need to obey them. That's what we're called to do. Christians are called to have the highest work ethic. We don't just work whenever we feel like it. You see, there was uh, a man who was retired from his work, and he was interested in the construction of this shopping mall, and he went to go look at this construction every day and when he was looking at this construction there's this one guy who was working this really big piece of machinery and every day he'd go and watch this guy and he was just astounded about how this guy could work this machinery and and then finally one day this old man who was retired came up to the man working the machinery and he said man how did you learn how to do that and he said wait a second I thought you were the boss well you see what was happening is that this guy was working really hard and he was doing a fantastic job because he thought he was being watched that's actually what Paul is talking about when he's talking about being a people pleaser, doing things for eye service. It means we only work hard whenever we know we're being watched. We're really not people of character. You see, one of the worst things that's actually being promoted in our generation, in my generation and younger generations, and really it's just getting the whole culture, one of the worst things that's being promoted is we're teaching people how to rest before we teach them how to work. And we're creating and we're seeing a culture of 
laziness, but Christians are always called to have the best work ethic. Just think about Jesus. Jesus was the best worker. Jesus did not wait to say, I'm, I just wish my bosses or my authorities, I just wish they would get their stuff together. They need to do their part, then I'll do my part. He worked. He took the initiative. And it's as we see Jesus working hard for us by all of grace that we should learn to work hard in our jobs or internships or wherever God would have us. You see, we need to be ready to obey our boss rather than just demanding our boss to obey us. Ungodliness shows itself whenever we do the bare minimum work with the bare minimum effort. Ungodliness shows itself whenever we're constantly criticizing our bosses rather than trying to lift them up and encourage them. But Paul, once again, he gets to the other side. Look at verse 9. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening. He's, he too says, uh, wanting them to keep their eyes upon Jesus. He says, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. In other words, bosses, if you learn how to be a good boss, keep your eyes upon ultimately your heavenly boss keep your eyes upon jesus in other words here's what paul is saying it's ungodly for us who are leading other people it's ungodly for us to make it all about us it is unchrist-like for us to be partial towards some workers while overlooking others it is unchristian to be a boss who is always threatening his workers with saying if you don't do this i'll fire you now it doesn't mean you never tell someone the truth you do need to tell someone the truth or else it's not loving. But if we're only holding the law over people's heads saying, do better or else, that's not living in light of the gospel. In a Peanuts cartoon, Lucy was demanding Linus to change the TV channel and, and she had balled up her fist and she was threatening him, change the channel or else. And so finally Linus, he changed the channel and as he's changing the channel, he he looked at his five fingers and he says, why can't you guys get it together? But that's not the way we influence people in work. We influence them by grace. We influence them by the gospel. You see, once again, how in the world are we to do this if we take our eyes off of Jesus? You see, do you feel like you fall short when you look at this? I don't know how you don't. I don't know if anyone in here can look at this and say, oh, I got this. And if you do, you're in a dangerous spot. This is supposed to lay us flat. This is supposed to show us our sin. This is supposed to show us the chaos in the world. And we're supposed to look, look to Jesus who did this perfectly, and we're supposed to say, Lord, forgive us. And that's what he does. He forgives us of our shortcomings, but he doesn't just forgive us. He empowers us and he transforms us to help us learn to live in light of this. We're never going to see a reformation in the world if we don't see a reformation in the home, a home that is gripped by the gospel. Brothers and sisters, that's why you always need to look to Jesus. You need to always see how Jesus submitted to his Father, how Jesus loves the church, how Jesus committed himself to sinners who didn't deserve it, how Jesus faithfully obeyed his Father and even his earthly parents, how Jesus patiently shepherds us, how Jesus worked hard for the glory of God, and how Jesus is employing us in his mission, and he's dealing with us in light of the gospel. That's what we need to keep in mind. Ruth Ryan, who is the wife of Hall of Fame pitcher Nolan Ryan, she wrote about this 
uh, time or these times, and it was her, her favorite moments whenever she would watch her husband play baseball. And, and here's what she said. It probably happened the first time on the high school baseball diamond in Alvin, Texas in the mid-1960s. And then it would happen repeatedly for three decades after that. Here's what would happen. Inevitably, sometime during a game, Nolan would pop out of the dugout. He'd scan the stands behind home plate looking for me. And he would find my face and he would grin at me, maybe snapping his head up and a quick nod as if to say, there you are, I'm glad you're here. And I'd wave back at him and, and flash him a smile and then he'd duck back under the roof and turn back to the game. It was a simple moment. And it's never noted in any of the record books or his career summaries, but all of those moments of all the games, that was the most important to me. Here's, here's what that shows us. As Nolan Ryan would always have to look and find his wife before he could figure out how to play the game, we cannot play this game unless we find Jesus. We cannot know how to go in a good direction and to walk in God's ways when we forget who the book is all about. It is all about Jesus, and that's the only way our chaos can turn into community. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would help us fix our eyes upon Jesus, that he would be the, the lens and the goggles through which we see the world. And, and as we see your son in all of his glory, he who perfectly submitted to you, he who is beautifying the bride of Christ, he who is our glorious and gracious master, as we see him, transform these very foundational relationships and help us as we are gripped more and more by your word to see a genuine reformation in this world. We ask all this, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen.